This podcast has now been referenced in keynote speeches at Arabia HQ, Architects Journal, BD Online, and GB News. Hello, Jason here. Before I start the podcast, I would just like to share some news. The Brock Architect podcast is now raising money for the Architects Benevolence Society. And I have set a target of £1,500 by December the 15th, 2023. Please consider donating as you never know when you yourself would need help. Links in the show notes. Now back to the podcast. This is season two of The Broke Architect. I have a question for you. Are you an architect and are you f***ing broke? If the answer is yes, it's what I've suspected for many years, as I am indeed an architect myself. This podcast is about debt in the profession of architecture, and I want to hear from you. Are you just surviving month to month with no extra money for savings? Or are you seriously broken in debt and stress and worry about your income? Or does your wife, husband, or significant other earn substantially more than you which gives you a great life, given the ability to choose your clients, when you work and who for? Or have you attained financial freedom in architecture? If you're in the first two categories, surviving month to month or facing financial difficulties, how is this affecting your mental health? Are you suffering from depression or even despair? Please share, subscribe, and comment to support the channel. I have with me today Oliver Lowry of Ackroyd Lowry Architects, located in London, UK. As well as being a business owner with John Ackroyd, Oliver hosts a podcast, Urban Forecast, which talks to people defining the future of our cities. In the podcast, he discusses people's background, what drives them, and the insights and what they have learned along the way. This is a show for investors, developers, planners, consultants, and anyone who is interested in how we will work, live, and play in the cities of the future and what that means for the property market today. I have no idea why I'm on the show, but here we are. The show is a battle royale where Oliver interviews me and I interview him. It's the Brock Architect versus Urban Forecast. We have an honest and frank conversation. Think Daily Mail against the Telegraph. Firstly, I will welcome myself to the second series of the Brock Architect podcast. Jason, welcome to the Urban Forecast podcast, but also this is a special episode this week where we are broadcasting on both podcasts. So we are also on the Brock Architect podcast in a collaboration. We've divvied it up and I'm asking, I'm interviewing you first and then we're going to flip it around halfway through and I'm, I'm going to be the one on the sofa with you asking the difficult questions. To start off, Jason, it'd be great to know a bit about your background and, and your current role. Yeah, okay. So I... I'm an, a chartered architect, 23 years experience. I started my career in 2000 and that's when I qualified as an architect and spent 10 years in commercial practice working for the likes of Shepard Robson and many other Manchester-based practices. I actually did have a stint down in London, uh, which lasted three months. I'll, t- I'll tell you briefly why. I worked at a really, really old practice called Architects Co-op co-partnership who I think did the festival of Britain really old school architects practice and they were taking on lots and lots of work and big projects and then many of them just got cancelled and it was made redundant after three months in in the sort of London area so that was my first real I guess setback in in architecture you know uh, qualifying and, and having that experience so yeah, after 10 years, I the recession hit and I really, really won, well, struggled to, to actually um, understand where my future would lie. Luckily for me- 2008. Yeah, I'd be, well, I'd been approached by, by someone within Sellafield Limited in nuclear and I managed to get into that company and I was in a bubble and protected now. I've been there ever since. I've had plenty of work. I get well paid and um, I've 
yeah, it's it it is like a bit of a bubble being in nuclear, especially with in Sellafield. You, uh, I'm not the cut and thrust of commercial practice like you are. And so, from that bubble, it gives you, I suppose, a bit of distance to be able to observe the industry from, I suppose, kind of the edge of it. Yeah. And is, so, do you want to talk a little bit about why you started your your podcast and how how that's going and and what you've learned, I suppose, from from doing it? Yeah, that, that's it's a good question because this is my second podcast that I've started. Uh, this one, I believe, is much more successful. And I'll let, I'll probably tell you the reasons why. So I, it all came from mentoring. So I've been mentoring for around about four years now, mentoring young architects and did it pro bono for a year or two, uh, trying to help the profession. And I formed this company, which I've still got called the Global Architect Alliance, which is essentially uh, my mentoring company, but also I do a lot of online mentoring with people all over the world. So I started, started the podcast and I think the name wasn't particularly it's a, there's a lot of interest in how what sort of name you use on a podcast i think um if you if you wanted to grow a bit of clickbait but the global architect alliance podcast started actually in clubhouse in an app, an app called clubhouse and we did many many episodes but it really wasn't uh, doing very well and i sort of had a real think about what do i want to do what do i really want I think people really want to hear from. And the focus is that we talk to architects. We're not talking about, we're not talking to architects, talking about architecture. So I'm interested in the human side of the profession, how we struggle in the profession, how education is sometimes lets us down with the business side of things. So, so I came up with this this year, so and and I I'd written an article called The Broke Architect, and it just seemed a natural fit to call the podcast The Broke Architect. It's just going really, really well. And I'm really hearing from people. At first, I was really worried that people wouldn't want to be on the show. And the first couple of people were anonymous who came on because we were talking about pretty tough issues, bullying in architecture. We all know there's a lot of stuff going on now in the in the industry just recently and the change has been immense because now i have people coming to me wanting to be on the show and wanting to talk about the real tough issues in the profession yeah it's amazing and it seems to it seems to be uh growing you certainly get a lot more listeners than 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 we do on our show i think you uh as a joke described yourself as the the daily mail of the architecture podcast (laughs) so it's you're you're trying to trying to be slightly controversial and work out what those hot topics are what have you found are the kind of recurring themes that 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 come up that's a good question as well yeah so the the obvious one is low pay there's definitely low pay there's burnout long working hours unprofessional behavior as well I, i could come on to and also it seems to be a profession that is undervalued. I hear that on virtually every single podcast, if you listen to, and it's, it is, it is quite depressing, but what we do focus on in virtually every episode is trying to find solutions. So solutions are really important because I don't want it just to be a podcast where people come on, they're whinging about profession but then offering no real way forward. That is a sort of a general sort of episode. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, that, that comes across. I think it's, yeah, I agree with you. You know, there's lots of challenges in the industry, but at the same time, if we aren't trying to address them, talk about them and then come up with solutions, then what is the point of just throwing our hands up in the air and saying, isn't it awful to be an architect? So I'm glad that you're, you're always trying to come in into a, a positive solution. What's, I mean, the main, the, I think the main ones that, that I think have, have come up recently are the sort of the cost and length of education versus the payoff in terms of, of salaries. What have been your, you know, you say you can't, you try and come to solutions. What, what do you think the solutions are to those, those two topics? Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll say what I truly think. So I think architecture is a really tough profession and I can understand the length of university that was designed you know so you get some experience with also studying and you develop and your skills 
But I think we need to move much more back to how architects used to study as an apprenticeship. So the struggle with that and the challenge with that, if you if you kind of imagine you working in a in a practice and you're not getting that full breadth of the experience, you might be in a small practice or a medium-sized practice and not seeing all of the different ways of designing. But the balance is that you go also to university. So it's a for me, it's an apprenticeship route balanced with studying at university. I think the the focus should be on the degree is where you learning about the history of architecture, you're working out how to design, hone them skills. But I think the master's side of things, the part two should be focused much more understanding the business of practice, looking more at the part three, the contract side of things. So, So you can kind of almost do your part two and three together. And, and kind of at least knock at least knock a year or two off off that that length of study because students now are coming out with debts of you know 90 to 100,000 and then um, they're starting well, 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 100 plus 100 plus now yeah especially in london you know living in london as well yeah i i'm i've got a more radical view than you and i, I don't think i don't think there's any need for any full time education if it's not something that people want for life experience and lots of people do. Lots of people want to go to university. But I think three years full-time education should be enough and nothing else. Yeah. It shouldn't, it shouldn't, there just isn't the requirement to. because, And this is why I think that, is that academia is not the best place to learn architecture. Architecture is a very practical and pragmatic skill. And so what I find is that people, anybody that comes out of university, be it part one or part two, we assume that we're going to have to pretty much train slash retrain. Yeah. don't understand building regulations and planning systems because people in academia don't really either you know a lot of these people the last time they practiced was pre-grenfell and you know pre like now you know the the, the requirements around a planning application are so complex and uh, 15 years ago they weren't they were much less they were much more straightforward so you're being taught it's sort of like going to study accountancy and being taught economics you know it's sort of similar but it's not quite the same you know economics is generalist and accountancy is very specific and architecture is quite specific and i don't think it should be taught by people that are in academia i think it should be taught by people that are in practice largely but if people want to go for a three-year degree because it's good to get away from your parents and learn life skills that's a sort of a Mm. different you know and i think that is a really beneficial part of, of people's lives but again i don't think that is should be mandatory so we're now partnering with new NCC, New City College, to be able to offer part one degrees in full-time work. So it's four days a week in work and one day a week at college. We can do part one and part two like that. And we're also actually going in much earlier. So we are going into the schools and and doing workshops, co-design workshops with the kids at sort of age 15, 16, when they're starting to make those decisions about what to do next. And then following on from that, we are able to partner with them to offer a T-level which is equivalent to two A-levels. And two A-levels will get you either into university to study architecture. That's the minimum requirement to get into a university that offers architecture is, is a T-level. Or they can go from the T-level into an apprenticeship scheme with us. And then we could do part one and part two. And you come out as a qualified architect at about the same time as you would have if you had done it the traditional route because you you compress you don't have to do the years out because you're already doing you're sort of already working in practice so and the benefit is other than the t-level you get paid the whole way through instead of going into debt you're actually you know you're not getting paid a full wage you're getting paid an apprenticeship wage but you're still not having to pay for your for full-time education and and uh, you know accumulating those debts which people coming out now that we're interviewing are it's over 100k which is you know it's a real challenge i think there's the there's a whole thing about roundabout diversity in the profession and who's coming forward into the universities. But I think we're almost going into a, a space where I'll phrase it like this. If I was going to study architecture now, coming from a, a real working class background in the northeast of England, and if they told me you'd have to incur £100,000 worth of debt, I would not do architecture. No, so granted they call it some sort of tax and if you don't earn a certain amount then you don't have to pay it back but some people that you know having that that debt over you at the back of your mind is not good 
it's also the interest on it is like it's like six percent or something it's not i think mm -hmm. when we were getting our student loans well i'm sorry that i don't know if this i don't think we are the same age but when i got my student loan i think it was at two percent and now it's at six percent and at six percent you're probably not going to be paying it off significantly even once you enter the threshold where you start to pay it and this is why we were really keen this is why we've spent a lot of time trying to work out how to be able to offer this basically from 16 route of never having to do full-time education because we're trying to build a company that designs the cities of the future and we don't think we can do that if all of the people that enter the industry are from the same back the same traditional background who are you know have enough whatever opportunity to consider a hundred thousand pounds worth of debt an acceptable thing to enter into a profession where a hundred grand salary is probably as much as you you're, you're ever going to get unless you're like a star architect so that's why we spent a lot of time and effort to to open up the doors to people who hadn't even and that's why we go into the schools age 14 15 16 to talk yeah. to them and show them this is what architects do because it's not even something that people would consider and you know in in the borough that we our office is in tower hamlets and the i think the average salary in tower hamlets is about 32 i can't remember if it's the median or the mean 32,000 is is the average adult salary so whilst some people you know whilst architecture is a challenging industry to make money you know if you can work through an apprenticeship scheme by the time you're a qualified architect which you can get through this apprenticeship scheme you will be earning yeah. more than the average salary in the borough and that's you know when you look at it that way around you're like well that's that is a good opportunity and you haven't had to accumulate the debt and you've got a job that is actually higher than the than the average salary in the borough so we want to change the industry through the stuff that we're doing we want to change the company through the through what we're doing we hope that that will have a, a bit of an echo around the industry no that that's absolutely wonderful maybe more practices take on the model that you are operating that would solve a lot of problems wouldn't it in the profession well, we are, yeah we're trying to we're trying to work out and so actually like a, there's a lot you know the, the part one apprenticeship scheme that's not something that we've set up we're just we, we've set up our partnership with ncc to do it but i think it was like fosters and perkins and will and stuff so there's really good work already by some of the bigger practices to set up the principles so we're um, the stuff that we're doing that's, that's slightly more unique is trying to get that T level and going into the schools kind of early to to sort of tell people that this is a potential opportunity and a route in that doesn't require them to to accumulate that debt. So it's definitely not just us, and we're we're sort of you know partnering with other practices and also benefiting from the work of, of other people. So it, it's exciting, I think. And this would be a, a segue onto another question: the people that are reacting to this the slowest appear to be. The RIBA and the ARB. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so my my question, so that wasn't really a question. So Jason, obviously you you have a role on the Reba Council. How long have you been doing it? What's your experience been of it? And how do you think these discussions would land in the hallowed corridors of, of the RIBA? Yeah, just just a correction. I'm I'm on membership, membership committee to the board. Sorry. And that was a that wasn't an elected role, but I'm, I'll I'll talk about my council <laughs> experience. So that was one where I applied and was interviewed and got accepted to to be on the council. Sorry, the membership well, the membership committee. That is how can I say it? It's slow moving at best. There are some changes coming that I think are positive changes. Tom Foggins, the vice president of uh, membership. So there's, there are going to be some changes, including, well, I can't really, can't really say, but there are going to be some changes to the membership structure and, and, and kind of fees as well. So they're looking, they're looking at um, the different categories of membership, uh, some that are working, obviously some that are not working, because fellowship hasn't been, I don't know if you've noticed this, you can't apply for fellowship for the last couple of years. I don't know if you spotted that one. So I'm not was, an RBA member, so uh, I'm not not eligible for me. Oh right, well th that was uh, pause now. Hoping, hopefully it's coming back soon because I'm I was one of the well the youngest to get RBA fellowship, and I think it's a really positive thing. Um, you know, it is very slow slow moving. That's all I I will say. It, we start again back in September to where where we. Because we broke, we broke for the summer summer period, and yeah, I really, but I really wanted to talk about councils and the struggles to get onto council. Because we just recently had the results of 
who is running for national council or as it's now rebranded to worldwide council. I ran three years ago for this and came third. I have a big following on LinkedIn, as you, as you probably know. I tried to rally the troops, but I'm based in the north of England. And it seems every time that anyone runs for council who are based in London, and there's evidence of this, you just need to look through the winners, it tends to be they're from London. This year was a slight change. We, we the, the person who got the most votes, uh, Timothy, was from Manchester as well, which was great. So, you know, to have some representation for outside of London. But I think it really is, it really is a challenge if you're passionate about trying to change the RIBA and you don't work for a big London practice. It's very, very difficult to get them votes and actually get people to vote. There was like 11% turnout of mm. members, which is in, always, it's always like this. It's such no a low turnout that it does feel like it should be, I'm not saying it's easy to get on, but it's such a low turnout that you're probably talking about a few a few hundred people to get, to, to win it. If you were, yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what the solution is. The metropolitan elite has still got their grasp over these roles then. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, I, I think so. I mean, I, I was up again, this is all public knowledge. Last time was Joe Bacon, big practice. And also Samita Singer, who's OBE and you know, very, very popular person, very good at what she does. But it's really difficult if you're kind of unknown in the London circles to get elected. It really, really is. But yeah, it's, they're my thoughts on running for council. But it, I don't want to discourage people. I just think you have to put a hell of a lot of effort into winning people around. And you can't just do it at the time it, the voting opens. You've got to spend many years trying to build support for the changes you want to make and what are those changes that's you know i think that was that was going to be my my final question is what yeah. you know if you were in that role or or even in the president's role or in you know the most powerful role in, in reba what would be your sort of magic three changes well i don't think arb really serves architects i will say that first on arb they don't want to prosecute people stealing our title. That's in reference to ARB, but it makes sense in what I'm going to say next. I think function should be protected. So, so you know, the, the title is titles are titles. You know, we, we, we you, and I are, you and I are architects. But what would bring the most value would actually protect in the function. So in order to build buildings and get them signed off and get the certificates, only architects should be able to do that. The function is protected. That is the one thing I think uh, if, if we could somehow navigate our way to getting that protection, you just got to look at the Grenfell, you know, Grenfell, what a, what a complete disaster on that one. But I think uh, that a lot of the new changes that are coming in with the Building Safety Act and stuff, there's going to be a lot more... Like if you take Grenfell as an example, there's a lot more opportunities. I don't know, there's got going to be a lot more thought about signing off buildings in the future. I personally don't know that that should be the architect being the one signing off. Like we, we have to have such generalist knowledge that I, I'm much more comfortable with a fire engineer doing an EWS1 than an architect doing it because if yeah. I consultant has this specific knowledge and I think that they, you know, the, the whole point of the post-Grenfell stuff is responsibility should be allocated to the person who is really the specialist in that area. Architects are so generalist that I, I'm not sure that I would think it a beneficial thing to make architects the only ones responsible for signing off buildings. Oh, no, no, I didn't mean that. Sorry. No, I, I mean, what I mean by this is is the architects are actually the hold the golden thread. You know, we're, we're there right, right at the inception of a project and we're often there right till the end. As long as other consultants can come into the equation and the contractors, but I think we need to stay on that project right till the end. Um, yeah. Okay. I see what you mean. Yeah. 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 Because often we are we are dispensed with. I think the biggest threat is to the industry is the sort of advent of AI. Really, I don't think I don't know what River and the ARB are thinking about it. But I recently went to a presentation to for a house builder about how their their new way of working and they spent you know it was very impressive what they'd done they'd, they'd spent their own money on developing a sort of ai interface plugin for revit that could kind of do a lot of what they would previously have asked architects to do you know this particular sort of plugin was for feasibility studies and you know there's lots and lots of these tools out there and i think that you know 
that's generally how we get our first interaction with with developers with clients is is doing that feasibility work and I, this is controversial in itself but we do offer that for free with new clients because I think that that's you know I've sort of been criticised for this before because like well you're devaluing your role but it's not it's adver- it's our advertising budget for effectively you, you know our part of our onboarding process for new clients is that the first bit of work is that we do for them is free and I consider that to be part of our our marketing and sort of outreach spend but then you know that's how you establish a relationship if the big house builders are going to be doing that themselves with with AI which I I see that as being very likely if not almost inevitable within the next five to 10 years, then new practices will, you know, how do they get their foot in the door? How do they show, how do they demonstrate to these, these new clients that they're capable of, of, uh, you know, that is how we build relationships. We do a bit of free work for people and and they, they like our approach and, and, you know, how, how we do things. So I think that AI taking away that initial role tend towards the, the bigger practices just staying with the people that already do their planning applications for them because they sort of know that they're going to do a good job of you know there'll be some leftover bits you'll need to you'll still need the you know the, the sort of the elevational treatments and stuff and the bit of creative design and stuff but I do think architecture teams will be much smaller because you're going to need fewer people with more powerful AI tools and I think that's going to make the industry shrink and then the other at the other end I think that detailing you know a lot of the stuff that the kind of te- our, you know, our technicians do it's you know, it's it's complex stuff, but it's reasonably repetitive. And I think, you know, and I'm sure that Revit are building their own. You already get the wall build up, you know, when you cut through a section. Yeah. Not that hard to imagine that it could also start to, you know, do the membrane laps and whatever else you need to put in. You know, the manually at the moment you're putting a kind of, you know, cavity tray or whatever it is over the top of your details. But why can't a bit of AI do that? I'm sure I'm sure it will be able to because it is almost, you know, it's very similar on a lot of buildings. And so that's another bit of the industry that you'll just see shrink. So I, you know, I don't think that those are both very positive things for for people coming into the industry now, but there's lots of things that, that AI won't be able to do. And I think retrofits a challenge, you know, non-house builder projects. So kind of like different sectors, I think where there's more bespoke and end user led projects, there's going to be more people having to flock around those, those projects. Yeah. Maybe that makes fees even more, have to be even more competitive. I think that's, that's probably a danger. I mean, the last pod- podcast I did actually with uh, Nigel Osteen of Hawkins Browns, he's the, looks after the finances and the fees of the uh, practice. He just basically said, well, I don't think architects really should be working on housing, can't really make it pay. I wouldn't look, don't look at anything less than a million pounds in value was his view. You can hear it on the podcast. Construction construction value. Yeah, and construction value. I know. That is, you know, that's a particular, Hawkins Brown have got a particular overhead. And that's, you know, if you're talking to somebody that runs, has a business that has two staff, I, th- I don't think that's a rule that would necessarily apply. Like. Yeah, and that was challenged in the podcast by by someone who has a small practice. But I think the, the point is, it is difficult to make architecture pay when you do in-house extensions and one-off, maybe not one-off houses, but small small work, it is really difficult. Yeah, no, definitely. I agree with that. I agree with that. Have you got any any final thoughts before we flip it over? I was just interested, actually, in your view of the profession, you know, and what you hear people moan about more, because, you know, a lot of people come to me and they'll they'll talk about money. They'll talk about the long working hours. They'll talk about the length of the profession, the levels of debt, you know, but what are people are people saying the same things that they're saying to me? As you're a practice owner, I'm not. Yeah, I mean, like, really, the thing that we've lost staff to over the past few years the most is people moving out of London because, you know, it's an affordability issue for this particular profession. I think it's difficult when you're in your 30s because the length of the education and the relatively low wages, if you've got friends that are lawyers or in banking, they'll be able to get their first house way before you to buy a house if that's if that's your aspiration and so and rents are going up and there's more competition for those rental spots and people are just going do you know what london hasn't got that much of a draw and it's starting to london is starting to the affordability with architecture salaries and architect length of architectural education in mind is starting to push people out out of the city and so you know that's that's a feeling that is definitely you know you can you hear it with staff and other architects so yeah, I think there's that. And then, I mean, the architects are always always going to whine about 
how tough it is being architects. I, I still think it's, you know, it's a challenging industry, but it, it can be very rewarding. So, I, you know, there are people that that still still mention that occasionally. I just maybe lastly, before I start asking you questions is, please listen to the podcast, because if you're thinking about doing architecture, or you're even thinking about quitting your journey into architecture, you're hearing from architects who've been through it. And they've experienced all these different experiences going through education, work, took on debt, coming out of, um, you know, being bankrupt and coming back. So it's it's a really good way of navigating the profession, I think, listening to that podcast, because it is very specific to, you know, hearing from the architects themselves on the struggles in the profession. So. Yeah, that isn't me to clarify. Get the one that went bankrupt and then had to come back. <laughs> put that out there. I think... My listeners would be really interested, uh, Oliver, in about your background and why you particularly wanted to study architecture. Interesting. I think I don't think I usually get asked that question from so early. The answer is I actually went to art school and I didn't really like it. So architecture was like seemed to be the most adjacent career. It seemed to be something where I could do a creative thing, but there was a discernible outcome. Fine art, I found I like the creative process, but at the end of it, I it was very hard. It was very subjective as to whether something was good or bad. And I just found the art college environment a bit. I want, I think maybe I'm, I'm like a, I don't know, I'm, I'm too basic for it. I just wanted things to be kind of right or wrong. And I think when it comes to architecture, it's, it's easier to ascertain whether something, whether a project has been successful or not versus fine art where I could look at something and think, it, you know, a, a sculpture is good and another person could think it's bad. I think buildings, Good buildings, I think, are pretty relatively universal. I think people can recognise when they're in a great building or in a really bad building or in a really bad development. I, I think you don't have to be an architect to know when you're in a poor quality development. So that's what that's what got me into it. And I, I didn't really fall in love with it until my third year of architecture school when I did like a one of these fantasy university projects on a school. And so before that, I hadn't never really found something that like I really could imagine because maybe I suppose I'd never owned a house and I'd never stayed in many hotels. So all these abstract briefs were a bit meaningless. And then a school, I was like, well, I went to school. So, I, you know, I'm like, OK, that's something that I can really if I was a kid, this is what I'd like. And then that I just found this passion for it. And so I then basically went and I found Archetype when I graduated and I walked into their offices and I had my CV and I was like, hi, I want to work here because they were the ones they were. The, I looked up all the school architects and they were sustainable school architects, which was my other passion. And I was like, oh, you know, this is like my dream company. So I walked in there with my CV and yeah, slightly obnoxiously sort of said, like, I'd like an interview. And then eventually I got one. And in fact, I think maybe I didn't leave until I'd met the boss. I can't remember what it was. Yeah, it was a bit over the top, but they gave me a job. And it was, I just loved it. And so I was like the happiest guy for 10 years working there and learning and designing some good schools and some less good schools. I mean, mostly they were mostly, it was like when Gove came in, they, it all became a bit challenging when he was education secretary and cut all the budgets on the EFA. And that's when I started to think about setting up my own place because I, yeah, I was finding it very frustrating under those. It was like David Cameron's government had just got in and they just cut all of the you weren't really allowed to be a, you know design wasn't really part of like the EFA schools program it was kind of like churning out boxes and archetype absolutely did the best that they could with what we were given but it was just less slightly less joyous and you know that I think that's flipped around now and there's some there's some great school buildings happening again but it was that moment in time sort of maybe started to think about other sectors and also you know I suppose the cut and, cut and thrust of running a business and and me and John were both working there John my business partner when we started you know chatting about ideas and that's when we sort of had started to form a loose idea of starting off a practice no oh, that's fantastic and did you before you set up the practice did you know much about the business side of architecture no <laughs> absolutely not no so we had we did a little so we did a little like a private job for some family friends who bought a site in Bermondsey and we got just in our spare time got when we were charging like 20 pounds an hour or something or less 15 pounds an hour maybe so this was coming out of the 2008 recession I think they picked up this site quite cheap and we got planning for like five units for them and then 
we advised them to sell it because they weren't developers and it was a tricky site and they did it they did all right and so i didn't really think about it for for a while and then about three months later i got this phone call i was on holiday and i picked up the phone and this guy was like i've just bought this site in bermondsey uh it says you're the architect and i was like oh god he was like you know i was like oh something's wrong and he was like well you know i just wanted to know if you want to do the technical design and so I was like, well, I don't, I don't have a company. And he said, well, why don't you just set one up? So I rang up John, said, look, we've got the offer there. So we didn't really have to think too hard about, about the business because we sort of, we like, I know it sounds really stupid because it wasn't a lot of money, but we had this fee that was coming in. And so, and we knew that we had one client and we had one project. So we were like, well, we'll start with that and we'll, we'll see where it goes. And so we, you know, did some work, put in the first invoice and then bought all the laptops that we you know we bought one laptop and then we got another invoice in and we bought a printer and another laptop and that and so we just kind of organically built it and that meant that we didn't have to think too hard about the business side you know it, t- it takes a long time to really work out how challenging it is if that makes sense yeah no absolutely so john is naturally good at finance and i think although we hadn't really been taught it i think that we he definitely has a good natural ability with numbers and with planning and with with finance so that was very helpful yeah i think you need that don't you you need uh, to to strengthen your understanding your strengths in the business and if you've got a gap you've got to fill that gap i'm really interested in you know you said you set up the practice and it was a very much an organic kind of growth but what is the ethos of your business? We're eight years in now. And I think that ethos has start, started to kind of really crystallize. You know, I think to start with, we were just kind of trying to survive. And that probably is true for the first three, four years. We started working with a non-executive advisor after about maybe two years. And that really helped us. Well, it really helped us with running the business. But one of the things that, that he was very articulate about was that we really needed to, we needed to set out the vision, find your why, I think was his his sort of expression, which is nicked from Simon Sinek. But so he really helped us try and think about like, what is it that we want to do? And, and, you know, that after eight years now, I think we're pretty, pretty firm on is that we want, we're trying to build a company that designs the cities of the future. And, and you know, that's our sort of top line. That's our kind of guiding North Star. So it's got, it's got two halves. It's one half is about the business that we're trying to grow. And then the other half is about the cities that we're trying to build. You know, what I learned at Archetype was lots of quite technical stuff around passive house and sustainable design. And, and I love Archetype and I think they do just amazing buildings. What we want to try and do is amplify that to the city scale. So that's what we want to talk about. You know, everything, including this podcast, is all a vehicle to be able to talk about cities and the cities of the future. And John and I both believe that, you know, we're about to enter a period of time that is going to be quite, there's going to be a lot of upheaval and there's going to be, you know, the climate, climate, is, the climate is changing and people are going to move and cities are going to become more and more important because there's going to be more and more of the landscape that you can't inhabit. And a lot of people are going to be moving towards Northern Europe realistically speaking and, and you know cities are we see them as potentially being the kind of the life rafts of humanity cities can be super efficient you know high density living can be really efficient and cities are going to need to accommodate more people and they're going to need to do that with less resource you know we need to create low energy systems within our cities and so that's you know that's the kind of the driver for us and then the people part we you know as i said already we want to we want to get a really diverse company that can that can do that that can then work, work on the designs of the cities of the future from having lived in cities themselves not not people you know not like myself from the home counties where you know we're, we're not the uh we're not going to come up with the answers yeah no i think really my next question that i'd like to hear from you because you've you know we've talked but about your academy that you've got and the training of young architects from school age and and beyond is is kind of rewards and awards for great architecture so the industry seems to reward star architects with their huge egos you know i've come around to thinking that awards should be more focused on a holistic approach to the creation of great architecture you know we should reward good architecture really only when checks and balances are in place to consider how the architecture was created, office culture, pay, happiness, you know, let's be honest, big name architects have got rich off slogging their workforce. Uh, What do you think about the process of 
architecture and how it's rewarded. It's a really good idea, a really good point. Um, so we've just applied for the, I think it's the AJ Employer of the Year. So, and we'll have to see whether they value the stuff that we have been doing, which definitely, like, we just don't have the, you know, the 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 the, the, the star architects of the world can splash around quite a lot of money on coming up with stuff that I think on paper looks like excellent sort of stuff and sensitization. But the main thing that we, as well as the academy, one of the things that we do is that we think that everybody should be paid for every hour they work. So we think that there's a problem in, in the industry of over, of unpaid overtime. We found it particularly during COVID because we, we were just less able to monitor what, what people's working hours were. And also I think there was like a bit like there was nothing else to do. So people were working quite long hours because it's kind of like, particularly in the kind of the first lockdown. So what we realized is that the only way we we're going to cut down on overtime is if we started paying everyone for it. So that's what we have now. And so first of all, we, you know, we've just said, well, look, every hour you, you, and we were quite busy. And so we just said every hour you work, you're paid for. And then through working out the expense of that, you can, you can get a better feedback of when you're overspending on projects. It really gives you more accurate data set so you know it was it was a the reason for doing it was 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 two one was because we thought that it was another thing that is preventing people from going into architecture is that if you're from a, a less you know if, you, if you're if you're from a less privileged background your ability to just absorb free work is reducing your hourly rate and and that's something that we we think should be shifted within the industry you know it, it's, it improves your diversity if you're able to offer people the actually actual hourly rate that they're promised rather than a sort of you know a, a sort of inflated or deflated one and the second thing was that we we really rely on our data set when it comes to running the business and the most accurate way that you can i remember when i was an archetype i just you know my timesheets were not the most accurate because it sort of didn't really matter it was like i just had to get 37 of them down on the, 37 and a half of them down on the page i think now if you're you know if you know that you're going to get paid overtime but we ask for a bit of you know we ask for some details about what you're doing there because we don't want it to be kind of misused and not suggesting that it would be but it needs to be justified so you get quite a detailed breakdown of their of what's really costing you the pain points what's making people have to work and once we started doing paid overtime we started to limit it you know so now it can be only it can only be done in with sort of advanced permission because we don't want people to do overtime we absolutely don't but if they do need to do it then it has to be authorized in advance so that we know we're like oh that means that project must not be able to you know being delivered in the normal working week so you need to ask in advance and that triggers that we need to look into that project and find out what's going wrong and also it's capped so you can't do more than a certain amount per month which means that for the rest of the time you work your normal hours and that's what we you know ultimately what we want is people to be working their normal hours and so that's uh, it's been a really useful tool uh, we've done it for three years now and we've got you know we've reduced it massively from where it started it was costing us a lot of, lot of money realistically and you know so we had to put in place policies to try and reduce it but that's good because you are genuinely just reducing people's overtime you're getting people back down to what they should be doing which is their working week so it's been interesting just to challenge you on that one then so are people aware in in the office in the business of when they're making you know when a project's profitable are they able to see you know the amount of hours that were projected to for the fee and then how they've performed is that something you share with people or is it's it a really good question definitely i mean we're working on systems at the moment to try and do that in a sort of non-scary way at the moment the, so all of the senior team can can see that because it's the, they're effectively running the projects we're working on ways to give it and we they can pass it down like what i agree with you is that everyone's really interested in that and we are we want everybody to have visibility as well and so, but we don't want everyone to have visibility of everything of everyone else's projects and stuff like that. So it's like trying to, we're working with basically building a, a system using Airtable to try and plug together some of our other systems. So we use CMAP as our kind of timesheet and accountancy software, or it sits on top of Zero, which is our accountancy software. And then we're trying to plug in another layer that will give people different visibilities. I think it's really, really important for people to be able to see that ticking up you know as it's getting towards the, the the limit of what the hours are and then it goes into the red and you, you know we start paying our clients and that does you know it happens it happens in every practice i'm sure i want people to be able to see that but i don't want people to be able to see that for people's projects that aren't their own so uh, that's what we're working on at the moment is the control system for how that uh, how to do that yeah i mean one thing I, I could maybe share from the industry i work in the new in the nuclear sector any 
any change so it's always obviously about managing design change so for example you would uh, when a client signed off something and then they say oh suddenly oh could you make this change you know that we 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 all submit something called a project variance notice and estimate the hours and that gets fed back in it gets fed back into the program of delivery and it's it's something that's a really really good tool of saying back to the client they they soon start stopping changing their mind with with what you know yeah so the, the thing that we're building is you would have that it would have that change tracker within it so that that is the idea that we're trying to promote the idea that everybody not just you know generally it tends to be that the directors are going when when we notice that a load of extra work's been done we're like go back to the client we're like hey we should be paid for this, but we want kind of to empower everybody to realize what the deliverables are and aren't so that they can just, you know, suggest that if, if additional work's being asked for directly to them, they can they can see whether it's in there themselves and, and then, you know, make their own variation order or change tracker order or whatever it is that you call it. Yeah, absolutely. I think my, my final question for you is what do you do to relax and maintain your mental health once you finish for the day? It's worth we're speaking on a Friday now. What 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 is it that you do to uh, unwind? <laughs> well, yeah, it's pretty stressful. It must be said. I've got quite into the gym this year, and that's really helped with mental health. I try and go every morning and like do a, yeah forty five minute workout session to try and unwind. I think the problem with running a practice, and particularly if you're really passionate about it, which which I am, is that it does like I don't think many architects have that many hobbies. If you're like I don't really I think. You know, when I get really passionate, I can think about work all weekend because it's, you know, it's it's not just my work. It's like it's kind of it's my passion as well. And so, yeah, I do find it. I love even my so my partner's an architect as well. And we just love nothing better than going to a new city and just walking around. And we will spend hours barely even talking, just looking up, you know, and I love that. Like travel for me, it, it gives me the the absolute it gives me everything because I get to see these these new cities and people living in in different ways to the ways that you know everybody you just assume that everyone lives the same way that you do until you go to like Mexico City and it's a bit the same and then other ways completely different and I, I you know that's that's probably my my other greatest passion is travel when I get to do it <laughs> yeah and I bet your camera your phone is full of uh, pictures of buildings and not of um, anything else yeah, I know I, well most half half snagging and then half half things that I think are cool <laughs> I'm sure you've got the same <laughs> is there anything else you wanted to share you know maybe maybe roundabout you talked about the culture within the office and that people get paid for pretty much working extra hours or it's approved ahead of time now, you know, but what do you think, what changes would you like to see in the industry to make the profession of architecture a much healthier place to be, a much happier place maybe as well? Mm, it's a good question. It's a good question. I think, yeah, we, for me, it's this, this sort of perceived lack of value. And I don't think the problem is doing a bit of free work at the start for a new client. I think the bigger problem is is the way that architects are valued in sort of tendering for larger contracts, you know, be it for housing associations, local authorities, the amount of work that goes into those, which is mostly, you know, it's never paid. It's weeks. I'm doing one at the moment and it's been weeks of work to put together this, you know, it's probably going to be, no, probably more, 50 pages, lots of quite difficult questions. It's an open tender, so there could be 20 architects doing it, and we're leading a multidisciplinary team as well. So we're having to be the single point to put together everyone's bids. 19 of those architects or 45 of those architects or whatever it is, you know, are going to, their tenders are going to be put in the bid, in the bin. It could be up to million, you know, it could be millions of pounds worth of hours that have been spent. You know, anything that's for a, an HA or a, or a local authority, that process, I think, is is part of where we get this idea that it's okay to do free work. And at least when I do a bit of spec work for a developer, one, it's design and that's fun and I like design. And two, somebody at least is going to get something useful out of it. That They might look at that scheme and even if they don't go with me, they'll, that, you know, actually it happened recently where I saw an application that had gone through where I'd worked on it for a particular developer and he'd chosen not to go through with the with the project, but we'd done a couple of pre-apps and obviously the planners quite liked it because the new developer that came in, the building that they ended up getting planning for had quite a lot, quite a lot that sort of looked a little bit familiar. And I was like, well, at least, at least, you know, at least it went some, at least it was useful. Doing these public sector bids, it's, it's work that is, is just 
kind of pointless for for everybody else that doesn't win the project and i just feel like there must be a better way of selecting the right architect and the right architecture team i think that's the difference because it's very exclusionary to the smaller architects you know but if you're a big company and you've got a bid team, then it's kind of easy because they write those questions all day and you just you pay their salaries and they, they understand those questions. For, for me as an actual architect, trying to understand what those questions are even asking me is, is you know, it, it takes a lot of time and compiling everyone else's CVs. So it means that you're going to end up with the people that win it being the people that have got the bid teams. So it's kind of going to always go to the same people, which I feel is a, a missed opportunity. Yeah, well, I mean, we've both interviewed Peter George, haven't we? And he's got yeah. quite interesting idea of maybe down selecting pretty quickly doing it for a week a week of work doing a quick scheme yeah. um, which spend a lot of you know take a lot of time and, and and cost and and down select that way and then pay the two or three people that get through yeah i think that type of thing would would help so yeah it's like a sketch plan for a week and and that's free in the you know the same way that you kind of work with a developer you do a sketch plan for free and you put together a little brochure about yourselves and if they like what they see they go with you and they, if they don't they go with somebody else and and then there's a stage two that's maybe paid or or you just pick off that initial thing I, I don't I don't know it's a difficult one to solve but I feel like the process is it's the tails wagging the dog now of 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 the, you know these clients are I can understand that they they have to protect themselves and so you have to ask a lot of things up front but I do feel like a two-stage where you are selecting people with a smaller amount of information down and then making them bid it at least even if you don't pay them for that it eliminates the amount of wastage that you're getting with an open tender where it's an infinite number of people that are all putting together these these incredibly time intensive documents I agree well Thank you so much. I mean, and thank is... you. Thank you. That was, it was really fun doing it. Was, this is the first ever joint podcast. So we'll have to see if it goes down well. Yeah, I think it will. Uh, I hope it will. I think it would, the questions weren't too tough. I <laughs> cool. Well, thank you very much. Cheers. Goodbye. Yeah. Cheers. If you enjoyed the show, then please subscribe and give us a review, ideally a five-star one. And if you enjoyed the Brock Architect podcast, also please consider leaving a five-star review. And uh, if you want to know more, please go to acroidlowry.com or follow us on Twitter at acroidlowry and Instagram with the same. This podcast supports LandAid, the property industry charity that brings together the sector to deliver life-changing projects for young people who really need it. Visit www.landaid.org to find out how you can help end youth homelessness. Please share, subscribe and comment to support the channel. Okay.